Welcome to Fishing Forward, a podcast inspired by fishermen for fishermen that focuses on health, safety, and staying ship shape in the commercial fishing industry. Fishing Forward is brought to you by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and by the Coastal Roots Radio Team at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison. And I'm Phil Loring. In this podcast, we're exploring how fishermen can be thought of as professional fishing athletes. That is, that the nature of their work demands the same high level of mental focus, training, and physical acuity that one might expect from a professional sports athlete. Throughout this series, we're using that lens to understand the many facets of fishermen's minds, bodies, and well-being, and we're digging deep into tough questions around issues that are critical to the fishing industry. In this episode, we're taking a turn away from our discussions about sleep and how it impacts fishermen's brains to how the sleep-depriving schedule of fishing can impact our loved ones back on shore. Today, we hear from an expert on sleeping habits and how they can affect our relationships, and we'll learn how fishing communities are supporting each other through the sometimes difficult parts of fishing family lifestyles. Hi, my name is Dr. Wendy Troxel. I'm a senior behavioral and social scientist at the RAND Corporation and author of the recently released book, Sharing the Covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep. Dr. Troxell's research on sleep is unique in that she considers not just how we sleep, but how we sleep when we share our sleeping spaces with another person. Well, I'm a bit of an oddity in the sleep field because I'm one of the few people who have throughout my career focused on how sleep is actually a social behavior. So how it's embedded in our closest relationships and our broader social environments. So one of my key areas of focus is trying to better understand how sleep affects and is affected by our closest relationships. Now I say I'm an an oddity in the field because most of sleep research tends to view sleep as an individual behavior. So we focus on individual factors like your sex or your age or your occupation that could influence your sleep. Um, But what that fails to recognize is that for most adults, sleep is actually a social behavior. So because most adults, about um, 66%, regularly sleep with a bed partner, and yet That's not typically how we think about sleep when we study it, for instance, in the lab. Um, And so we're neglecting to consider, you know, how two people, you know, share this intimate experience together that's so critically important for our health and well-being and behaviors and productivity. And we're also failing to consider both, you know, how sleep can affect our closest relationships and how our closest relationships can affect our sleep. Wow. So hearing sleep framed this way. It seems so obvious that sleep is something that we tend to do with a partner, especially in the adult portion of our lives. But I've never heard it described as social behavior before. This term was new to me too. And and I agree, it makes a lot of sense to consider it this way if we do sleep regularly with a partner. I asked Dr. Troxel to explain this notion of sleep as a social behavior a little bit more for us. When you think about that one third of our lives is spent asleep and most of us are doing it with a partner, then it stands to reason that we need to start thinking about sleep in the context in which it occurs, which is with another human being and all the associated challenges and benefits that may come from that. 
But, you know, if we neglect to consider that for many adults, the sleep experience, at least for part of their lives, is shared, then we develop all these assumptions about how couples should sleep together or what it means if couples have challenges in sleeping together. And again, here I'm talking about the literal meaning of sleeping together, actually sharing a bed, not strictly, um, you know, not, not the biblical meaning, which is what, what actually gets much more focus. And yet we spend so much more time uh, in the literal meaning of sleeping together uh, when we share a bed. Dr. Troxell mentioned there that her work looks at both challenges and advantages to social sleeping and that the results are somewhat mixed. For instance, in one study, Dr. Troxell described people who have a sleeping partner were found to move around more and have a lower quality of sleep, but they self-reported a better sleep experience when sleeping with their partner as compared to alone. We have this disjunct between how we objectively measure sleep and that we actually show some decrements when two people share a bed But subjectively, people experience better sleep when sharing a bed with a close other. And this is so interesting to me because it really speaks to one of the healthy characteristics that we we get from particularly good quality relationships, that sleep is a vulnerable state to be in. You know, you're lying down, you're semi-conscious, you're vulnerable to potential threats from the environment. But we as human beings are social beings. And one of the primary ways that we develop a sense of safety and security, even in vulnerable states such as sleep, is through our connections with others. So despite the fact that there may be objective consequences of sharing a bed, people subjectively prefer to share a bed with a partner because it gives them this um, psychological sense of safety and security. So it's this interesting sort of mismatch between the objective measures and the subjective measures. So this makes me wonder about partners who, for various reasons, prefer to sleep separately. How does sleeping alone when in a relationship factor into sleep experience? This is such a good and honestly sometimes sensitive question for couples. Dr. Troxell explains that in a nutshell, there is really no wrong way to sleep. That said, I always tell people there is not one way, you know, or one right way to uh, sleep with your partner or not. In fact, probably the most commonly asked question that I get as a researcher who focuses on couples and sleep is, is it bad if my partner and I sleep apart? And the short answer is no, not necessarily just as sleeping together doesn't guarantee a happy or successful relationship, sleeping apart doesn't guarantee an unhappy or unsuccessful relationship. It all depends on the communication around what's working and what's not working when it comes to the shared bed. So for couples who are experiencing some negative aspects of social sleeping, what are some ways to improve on that? Well, Dr. Troxell offered some good solutions, including one called the Scandinavian sleep method. Two twin beds put together um, make a, a king bed. And this is a great solution for some couples who might have differences in, um, you know, sort of mattress firmness preferences or other comfort preferences, or maybe one partner is a sheet stealer. And, and so you can have separate bedding, but have one sort of overlay. So it looks like um, a king size bed because many people still feel the stigma attached to sleeping apart because in our society, we tend to think of like couples who sleep apart, that necessarily means it's a loveless or sexless relationship. So by having these two twin beds, but put together, you have the sort of image of a king bed, but both partners get to have their individual sleep preferences. 
what that kind of arrangement also does is it minimizes displacement caused by the partner. Um, and, you know, when, again, we look at these sort of objective consequences of sharing a bed, one of the major factors has to do with the fact that when you're sharing a bed with another human being, there's just more opportunity for motion. Um, and the motion caused by one partner, if they roll, um, that can cause an awakening in the other partner. So two twin beds or differences in individualized mattresses can help that out. Now, obviously, the best solution to social sleep challenges is going to depend on the specific problem that a couple is having. Perhaps one of the most notorious ones is that of snoring. Dr. Troxell suggests that if a partner is regularly snoring or gasping for air, that this might be indicative of a much more serious underlying sleep disorder, such as sleep apnea, and it's really important to encourage the person suffering to go get properly assessed. So first use it as a motivator. It's not just a nuisance um, that your partner is keeping you up. It could be a sign of a serious medical condition. So you should encourage your partner to seek treatment. Short of that, there are other practical strategies that couples can and do use to deal with the interruptions caused by snoring. Um, you know, many couples do choose to sleep apart um, because the snoring is, is so um, sort of significant and causing sleep disruptions. My recommendation there, again, it, you know, the decision to sleep apart is really a couple level decision. It doesn't mean anything disastrous about the relationship, but, you know, healthy couples are able to negotiate topics, including how they sleep in a healthy way. So instead of saying, I'm moving out of the bed because, you know, you're keeping me up all night, really focusing on the fact that in order to be a better partner, I think we would sleep better if um, we would both sleep better if we slept apart. Can we give it a try? So focusing on the fact that enhancing both of your sleep is actually a relationship promoting goal. And so it's not about, you know, wagging your finger or blaming the other person, which really is not a great relationship skill in general. It's really about focusing on the value of sleep for optimizing your relationship as well as both of your health. Now, at this point, our regular audience might be wondering how these otherwise very practical tips on social sleeping apply to our focus on commercial fisheries and fishermen and their partners. Well, one issue that Dr. Troxell sees a lot in couples is that of mismatched sleeping. As we've heard in past episodes, commercial fishermen often have intermittent sleep that falls outside of a normal nighttime sleep schedule. Those sleep habits developed on the boat can follow them home to their so-called normal lives where they may struggle to match sleep quality and habit with their shore-based partners. Other couples experience differences in sleep-wake schedules, which might be sort of particularly relevant in the population that you're focused on, where there might be, you know, shift work or just erratic schedules, people kind of, um, you know, having to leave the bedroom to wake up really early or coming to bed really late at night, that can cause disruptions in the other partner's sleep. And so for that, I also discussed sort of practical strategies for couples, whether it be using um, an eye mask, so there's, you know, not a disruption caused in the bed partner when the lights go on or using earplugs and sort of systematically and mindfully having discussions about the differences in schedules and sometimes maybe making the decision that 
in a given work week, let's say your partner has, um, you know, is working nights or is going to be leaving at the crack of dawn. And that's going to really have a negative impact uh, on the other bed partner's sleep. Maybe for that time period, you do a temporary sleep separation uh, because it ends up being that, you know, both partners might not be sleeping well after all, if they're sharing a bed because of the partner who has to wake up early in the morning is really nervous and tiptoeing around that um, bedroom, worried that they're going to wake up the other person. Sometimes temporarily sleeping apart can also help with these work-related differences in sleep schedules as well. Dr. Troxell works with families in the military who, like fishermen, can face scenarios where one's partner is away from home for extended periods of time. She says that when they return, sometimes sleep during that adjustment period can be really challenging for both partners. A lot of my work has focused on um, both service members and their partners and you know their sleep after deployments. And what we know is that service members um, have high rates of sleep disturbances for a number of reasons, including the fact that they work in a very high risk and high demand um, occupation. Um, They're often deployed to settings that are violent and hostile and um, dangerous um, and threatening. And we as human beings, you know, the environment that you sleep in or that, that, you know, if you learn that the environment that you're, that you're in is, you know, hostile or threatening as service members do during a deployment, that can sort of become a conditioned habit both day and night. So it can make it very difficult to fall into deep, restful sleep. And the thing is, um, these habits that form or this conditioning that may form during a deployment, um, and also the you know, sleep environment itself is quite different in a deployed environment. You know, it's noisy. You might be sleeping w- w- with other service members. There might be threats. There might be um, from the external environment. It's, it's, it's a very different type of sleeping arrangement than you experience when you come home. But as different as it is and as difficult as it is to sleep in those environments, the more service members experience these deployments and longer deployments, you kind of become used to it. So become, you become conditioned to that deployed experience. I'm hearing a lot of echoes here of experiences had by fishermen who spend seasons at sea and become fully adjusted to their boat sleep schedule. Yeah, exactly. And this reminds me very much of John Corbin, a fisherman we featured in previous episodes, who said that he had trouble sleeping for more than just four hours of time after years and years in the crabbing industry, even once back on shore. That adjustment to the non-boat environment, much like the non-military environment, can be really hard, both for service members and fishermen and their families. And there's also an adjustment for the partner of the service member. So my work has also shown that um, the partners of service members also have high rates of sleep disturbances. And I think in working with these couples, it's really about helping them to realize that the fact that there is an adjustment period after return from a deployment for both of you doesn't mean you love the person less or that you're somehow incompatible. It's just that you do have to sort of relearn some strategies of how to sleep you know, at home and together, if that's your choice, you know, after returning from whatever type of deployment you experience. And that it's really okay that there is an adjustment period Oh, because we didn't just automatically fall back into this you know, easy you know, sleeping together arrangement that it means something negative about the relationship. It's just that you both have to you know, reacclimate you know, to sharing a bed if that's your choice. 
thinking about that transition period, Hannah, one thing that seems to happen is that the period of catching up with a partner who has been away for a while, that is dealing with all of the details of life that may require their input, but have built up during their absence. I wonder if Dr. Troxel has any insight on the best way to negotiate that early transition to having both people back at home and taking on the responsibilities of their relationship and the household. Yes. Again, Dr. Troxel's work with military couples certainly covers most of this. And I think many of her insights apply well to the commercial fishing industry, especially for partners who might be doing all of this while still catching up on sleep. Focusing on that important reintegration period is so important and recognizing that both partners have unique experiences and needs, um, you know, that, that, that want to be met immediately, but, you know, sometimes they're in conflict and also recognizing that there are all these changes in roles and demands and expectations of both partners, particularly in longer deployments. This can be really challenging for military couples because, you know, the the service member partner who is away maybe for, you know, six months or longer at a time, um, they're doing their very difficult and demanding job. Well, the stay at home partner is left with all of the responsibility of the home. But over time, the longer the deployment, they also sort of establish their own rhythm. So recognizing that the reintegration period is in part reestablishing your rhythm as a couple and a family, and being okay with the fact that it is an adjustment period. You know, I think people get scared or worried that, oh, this means something negative about our relationship because it is an adjustment. Well, that's just normal. It is an adjustment. And the more you can have some acceptance around the fact that you both need some time to reestablish those now dependent and integrated rhythms, as opposed to sort of operating, you know, on, you know, the fisherman is off on um, his or her um, rhythm you know, on the vessel of, of whatever it is. And, and the stay-at-home partner is working in the, the rhythm of the family at home, allowing some time and acceptance uh, for that to happen is really important and not being judgmental of yourself or your partner that you are experiencing that kind of adjustment. The other thing you pointed out that is so critical is that when sleep deprivation is at play and if the uh, service member, or in this case, um, the fisherman is coming back um, and and is experiencing a lot of of sleep deprivation, allowing some space for catch up on sleep um, is really important. Because again, um, if either partner is sleep deprived, it makes it that much more difficult to be, you know, that healthy uh, partner that you want to be. Relationships in commercial fishing communities are an essential piece of fishing lifestyles, but they face many unique challenges. Perhaps no one understands this better than the people who partner with commercial fishermen, spouses, children, and family. Let's go now to Newport, Oregon, where I recently spoke with Tonette Dixon, a member of the Newport Fishermen's Wives. My name's Tonette Dixon, and I do the PR for Newport Fishermen's Wives. Uh, Newport Fishermen's Wives is a nonprofit that's been around since 1970. Uh, we um, focus on uh, commercial fishing, safety, um, education, and mostly uh, community outreach. So we do a lot of community outreach in our area. Uh, we help uh, fishing vessels that have gone down. We help their families. 
we just do uh, like we did a big COVID outreach when it was affecting our our industry uh, severely. We do a lot of fundraising because there's a lot of families in need in the industry. And um, lately, we we have done a lot of PR, a lot of education, a lot of um, industry talk. I think getting um, the correct information out to the public is is pretty important at this state in our industry. So uh, we do a lot of that. We go to conventions, we go to schools, we go um, anywhere we're asked and, and we get our word out. Tonette has been in the fishing industry her entire life and comes from four generations of fishermen. Her husband, also from a longtime fishing family, continues to fish Alaskan and West Coast waters. She works with the Newport Fishermen's Wives in part because of how their group offers community to partners of commercial fishermen. In our careers, Hannah, we've also seen the mission-critical role that onshore partners play in managing the sometimes significant logistical challenges of fisheries, particularly those that involve people being away for days or months at a time. Yeah, Tana explained to me how, as fisheries have become increasingly regulated over the years, her role as a logistical coordinator has become part and parcel to the success of their business. So um, as a boat owner, my life is different than as as before we owned a boat when my husband was just running a boat, because now there's the regulatory issues that are going on. So if my husband's out at sea, he, he can't deal with leasing fish to fish or or leasing out our fish or getting an observer on the boat or, you know, all the, the many different aspects of fishing that that weren't really around when my grandfather was was fishing. You know, before you would you would go out, you would fish. There was plenty of processors. So you, you found the best price and you delivered. And it's just not the same anymore. There's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of involvement. Tonette mentions here long periods of time where her husband is away. And aside from the logistical work she's doing, I imagine there must be an emotionally difficult side to those long periods of separation for both people. Definitely. Long separations can be hard on any couple, and fishing can make it even more difficult when one partner has little cell phone service and works strange hours. Tonette grew up in this environment, so she says that for her, this is normal. But she sees other members of her community sometimes struggle with these periods of separation. I see fishermen that are dealing with... um home lives that with wives, girlfriends that aren't used to this lifestyle. And and it's difficult. And, and that's what I love about fishermen's wives is we are there to kind of help you get through these difficult times and, and kind of offer advice. If there's something that comes up while you're, um, while your husband's gone or we, because we're a big family, if, my husband was gone, my dad was there, or my grandfather was there, or my brother was there. So there was always somebody there to help and to kind of be that male figure for my children. Because when we first started, when he first started having babies and was gone, he was in Alaska nine and a half months out of the year. He was fishing, he was out fishing for most of that time. So I chose to to stay in Newport and not go up to Alaska. Now, if you remember back to Dr. Troxell's comments about transition periods in relationships, that is true for some people with both preparing to leave and returning home from a fishing trip. Tonette has this great description of that transitional period between her and her husband. I call it the weirdo week. There's like a week before he leaves that we're both just kind of trying to adjust to him being gone. And then there's a week or two when he first gets back where we're like, 
oh, he's the captain of that ship and not this ship because I'm used to being the boss. So it's, you know, it's every single wife I've talked to who goes through this has the exact same thing. There's just that little week or two that's just we're both kind of off and trying to figure it out. But we always do. It always comes around. We figure it out and, and it just works. I've always said that because I have people ask me all the time, how can you do that? How can you raise kids without your husband there? How can you do it? And I'm like, how can you do it with your husband there all the time? That would drive me crazy. Like, we're so used to it. I'm so used to being the boss. I can't imagine, you know, it was it was just what it was. So it didn't it didn't bother me. Outside of these transition periods, I suppose that when Tonette's family is all home together, they can really get some quality time in. They most certainly do. Tonette's husband is home for a month at a time in between fishing trips. And the way she describes that period together really makes it sound like it's rich in family time. We have a whole month at a time off. Like we know that he's going to be fishing for two months and then he's going to have a month off. So that month is, is you know, 24-7 with our, our kids and our family. So, um, yeah, it's a trade-off. It's different, but it's, it's, we love it. It's rewarding for us. I imagine, though, that even if Tana and her husband have a good rhythm at this point in their lives, there must have been some rocky times. For fishing families who are just getting started or who struggle with these transitions, did she have any advice for how to navigate these relationship challenges? She did. And I think a lot of what she has to say here is rooted in those strong communication skills that Dr. Troxell mentioned. Well, it just took figuring it out. It, it, it took him being gone and coming back, you know, a few years before we figured it out that that it's just an adjustment. So we we are aware it's going to happen. And when something's going on and we're butting heads about, you know, who's going to make the decision about what, I'll just remind him, you're not the captain of this ship. And then he'll be like, oh, yeah, I got to I got to adjust like we've we've got to adjust personalities, especially when men are running a boat. They just get used to a certain type of conversation. And that conversation is one way and there's no having to explain it. It is what it is. And you just do your job. Well, he can't come home and talk to his wife like that. So, it, you know, it's, it took a while for him to be like, oh, I'm doing that again. So I just. You just remind them to say, yeah, no, not going to work. And it, it, it works for us. I'm happy that I'm in a group now of women who live this lifestyle. And when there's young women like my daughter's age that are just starting out with it, we can tell them, hey, it's okay. That's normal. That's what happens in all of our families. And then it normalizes it for them so they don't think they're doing something wrong or, or you know, they're not... They're not adjusting to their husband being home correctly. I, I think that it just is a lot of conversations that need to be had. And it makes me sad that a lot of communities don't have groups like ours because um, support systems are important. Of course, not every relationship in the commercial fishing industry can navigate choppy waters successfully. I see fishing families really struggle with that. I think I think part of it is the absence, but I think a lot of um, it is lifestyle too. You know, in our industry, it's it's feast or famine. So you you know you're coming home with these huge paychecks, 
but then, you know, you're going three months without a paycheck. So it's adjusting. I mean, there's a lot of things you need to adjust your life to. And if you have somebody that is raised differently, that isn't aware of, of the adjustments that have to be made, I think it, it can be hard. It can be hard to, I see it a lot. You, you, there's a lot of broken families and, and it's tough. And, you know, I think also that there is a, a high addiction rate in commercial fishing also. And that's, you know, attributes to the, the problems. I think that commercial fishing is a very physical, demanding, emotionally demanding, physically demanding job. So I think it takes a lot of understanding from home. And, and I'm a little old fashioned in that, but I know when my husband used to call me from Alaska, I made it my mission to not give him the bad news that were going on. I wasn't telling him about the drama that was going on at home because he was dealing with so much up there. And I didn't, they just sit on a boat and they dwell on it. So, you know, it's those little things that you don't realize I've been on a boat. So I realize how much time you have to just overthink things, but most girlfriends, wives have not been on a boat. They don't understand that. And it's, it's those little things that make it a little bit easier to, to get through it. I heard Tanette mention addiction issues there, which I think to some extent has become a challenge across commercial fisheries in North America. Yeah. And we're going to get into those issues of addiction and substance use disorders in future episodes. But Tonette briefly touches here on the challenges that addiction can bring to crew members and for captains who are looking for reliable crew on their boats. You know, it's a tough topic because it's it's not just our industry, it's all over. But um, we see it a lot. You, you see, especially on, so I have a 63-foot boat. Um, it's, you know, a mid-size. It's, it, it does well, but it, it's not, you know, it's 120 foot that, that's catching massive amounts of fish. So boats smaller than mine and, and around my size, you see a lot of boat hopping. You see a lot of crew members that, that are suffering from addiction and um, you don't realize it till you have them on the boat. Um, I think that boat owners are getting smarter. There's more um, preventative issues like having drug screening before you you get a job but you know things are changing it it wasn't like that 20 years ago you didn't you didn't really um you didn't really have the same issues but but now there's it's it's just changing everything everything's changing in the industry and, and that's the toughest part there's not a lot of stability when you have addiction so um you're not being stable at home you're not being stable on the boat it's tough. It's tough finding crew members. It didn't used to be as hard as it is now. Stability in the commercial fishing industry is a challenge, even outside of substance use disorders. The economic precarity of seafood harvest is a long-standing challenge to many fishing families, and it's made all the more difficult when natural or man-made disasters strike, or the regulatory environment for the fishery itself is uncertain. Tonette and the Newport Fishermen's Wives try to offer more stability through their many undertakings and are able to connect resources when they are needed, since they have such personal and intimate understandings of these challenges. Most recently, COVID-19 has put many families in need of their support. The, the women before us, they decided to become a nonprofit because um, there were issues that 
arose in the in, in the community. So I, I believe the first one was we needed a rescue helicopter. We were um, one of the biggest ports in Oregon, but we didn't have a rescue helicopter close. And there was some really big tragedies that were happening um, during the um, the Dungeness crab season. It's just a pretty brutal season. So um, they lobbied and, and they came together, got the community to get together and, and they um, got a rescue helicopter here. They also needed um, a um, helicopter pad because they were rescuing these men in frigid water and then having to take them to the airport, then by ambulance to the hospital, which was missing crucial time. Um, so they, they then did that. Um, and then it just became issue after issue. So um, we started some outreach programs a few years ago when the crabbers were on strike. Um, the season before that, where a lot of the boats are fishing is shrimp. So there's about three months where there's a lot of boats that aren't fishing before the crab season. And when the season's delayed, which it is a lot now, you know, demoic acid or having strike or, you know, there's several reasons why it gets pushed back. So. Um, we decided we would start um, a holiday outreach. So we were providing families because the season's supposed to start on December 1st and it was being pushed back to January, sometimes 1st, sometimes 15th. All these families didn't have food. They didn't have clothing. They didn't have presents. And it's also tough when you're in the industry because you don't know, like we wouldn't find out until right before that, that the season wasn't starting. So they didn't really qualify to get help from other programs. So, um, so we started with that. We started providing food and clothing and presents for, for children in the family. And then when COVID hit, um, the first thing that happened is, is our biggest plant in town was hit hard. And so our boats weren't fishing. And there were members in the community that couldn't go out, you know, when it first hit, like you were housebound, you couldn't go anywhere. So they needed, you know, medical supplies, they needed food, they needed everything. So, um, so we started providing that with COVID and then we got a big grant from another um, place. And so we were able to do it for, I think the first year we kind of did it pretty constantly with any families that were dealing with COVID and it, you didn't even have to have COVID because COVID was affecting the fishing industry, whether you had it or not, because sometimes your boat was sitting for a month because the plant was shut down. Sometimes the worst happens when vessels and crew are lost at sea. In those cases, the members of Newport Fishermen's Wives have come together to support survivors and surviving family members. We provide assistance to the crew that that survives. If there is a loss, then we are immediately reaching out to the family. Um, we provide financial assistance, but we also provide um, help in other ways. There's several members that have been in the group long enough and have gone through enough tragedies that um, it's kind of an automatic. Um, sometimes. Uh, we are providing emotional support. Most of the time we're helping with funerals. So we help in every aspect. We provide food, we clean up, we set up, we help um, steer them into the right direction of, of you know, connecting them with vendors or, or doing whatever um, is needed. So we like to end these episodes with a few take-home messages. Hannah, what were your aha moments this week? 
Well, I think these interviews really reinforced for me just how hard relationships can be when they're shared across the fishing industry. But there are things that we can do to help ease those difficult transition periods, such as practicing strong communication skills and taking the time and space needed, even in the bedroom, to adjust. I was particularly interested in the Newport Fishermen's Wives Group. This is a cool model to provide support to fishing families, particularly those who stay on shore. If you're interested to learn more about their work, you can find a link to their website in the show notes. We'll leave you with one more clip from Tanette, who I think nicely summarizes why the hardships of a fishing lifestyle can be so worthwhile. Once you get a taste of the sea and you get a taste of the lifestyle and um, there's something that is is so rewarding about feeding the world and, and, and catching, you know, this great product. And I'm proud of our industry. So it makes up for the things that are difficult. Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, you heard from Dr. Wendy Troxell, a senior behavioral and social scientist at the Rand Corporation, and from Tonette Dixon of Newport Fisherman's Wives. Fishing Forward is a production of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We love to hear your feedback. You can share your thoughts with us via email at fishing at necenter.org. That's fishing at necenter.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 607-221-4448. And of course, you can also visit us on the Fishing Forward podcast webpage at www.coastalroots.org forward slash fishing forward pod. That we do our best to bring you accurate information and lived experiences in this podcast. Please remember that all of the health related information presented here is the opinion of the interviewees and it should not be interpreted as licensed medical advice. As always, talk to your physician about your own health needs and circumstances. Fishing Forward is funded by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. We also receive support from the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, Oregon State University, the Pacific Northwest Agricultural Safety and Health Center, Fishing Partnership Support Services, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the NORA Agriculture, Forestry and Fishing Council, the Southwest Center for Agricultural Health, Injury Prevention and Education, and the Local Catch Network. Stay sailing.